This is Dear Analyst, episode number 113, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about my top five data analytics trends for 2023. It seems like it's that time of the year again where data professionals, we revisit our data predictions from 2022. We decide what went wrong, what went right, and we think about, oh, this must be the year for XYZ trend. And I'll be the first one to say that forecasting and predictions are 100% difficult, subjective, and nearly impossible to verify in this case because how do you know whether or not a data trend actually is a trend for that year? And the caveat here is I would say that most of my predictions are based on what I read from other people on different blogs and social networks and what have you, it's really hard to know what actually is being implemented data system wise within organizations. So these are just kind of a recap of things that I'm reading about, but whether or not it's actually happening within your organization or other organizations in the United States and around the world, I have no freaking idea. Um, I can speak about what's kind of happening within my company where I work, and maybe that could be a model for what we can see in 2023? Who knows? So with that said, I want to kind of talk about these five trends which are already happening or may happen with more regularity in the new year and also a few things that I'm working on for 2023 for this podcast, for Key Cuts, which is the umbrella company, if you will. And we'll just leave it at that. So with the first trend for 2023 and this is something that we all saw in the last three months in 2022 and it's really hard to avoid at this point which is artificial intelligence natural language processing augmented analytics all these things are lumped into this first trend and i feel like i couldn't speak to a 2023 trend without mentioning chat gpt AI and all the really neat use cases we're seeing on social media. Internally at my company, we've already started testing out some of the technology for summarizing media notes and it works out quite well. It potentially saves a human from having to summarize these meeting notes. And one of my favorite applications of ChatGPT and AI was from Joshua Browder. He is the, I believe, CEO of a company called Do Not Pay, which started off as a kind of automated service for fighting parking tickets. But he utilizes ChatGPT to talk to a Comcast chat agent. And for those of you outside the United States, Comcast is a big cable internet provider within the US. And this chat bot was able to talk or chat with a live agent to basically reduce the his uh, this person's cable bill by like, per month or something. And so I thought this was kind of neat just as a way to showcase the power of ChatGPT and AI. But what I'm more interested in and what I think will happen more often in 2023 is how AI will be used internally at organizations to improve data quality. 
And what I mean by that is data quality is always an issue when you're collecting large amounts of data and there's going to be duplicate data, missing data, incorrect data, it's badly formatted. And instead of having an analyst writing SQL queries to update and insert various data within the database, you can have AI do that for you by finding and augmenting your data with what could be considered correct data for a given instance. And a recent episode with Corhonda Randolph, um, she talks about how her team was fixing data, sometimes by calling up customers to verify their address and phone numbers. And this is all part of a master data management system that she was managing. And you can look in the show notes for that episode. And I think there's some thing, something to be said about using these technologies to help you fill in the gaps, quote unquote, when you don't have a bunch of data engineers to help you do this uh, every single day. So if you're a cash strap startup and you're looking for ways to automate this, this might be a way to uh, basically fix your data. And I think even uh, technologies like Codex, which is built off of um, some open AI, open AI technology, is you can actually have you know the AI robot actually write code for you. And this could actually transform into the bot writing transformations for your database or something like that. So again, if you're lacking the human talent to code for your, your data engineers, then maybe this could be a way to supplement that or completely replace that. I don't know. Um, but I do think that there is a world for this type of technology. And within organizations, I think the immediate use case is for augmenting your data and filling in the data where you are missing, you have duplicate values, and everything is malformed. And we all know that the number one thing that data engineers do before they even do the, any analysis is just cleaning up dirty data. So I think there's a lot to be done in that realm. So that's number one. Number two, enforcing data privacy and regulation in your user database and really any other database that you're storing information. And I think this trend has been going on since 2018 with the introduction of GDPR. And as I think as digital transformation is taking over companies in all kinds of industries and you have privacy laws like GDPR, CCPA um, put into place, you have these companies who are just understanding how to put data security and governance over the data they collect and they store. And in particular, this is user data. I think it's interesting how really any company where you're doing a transaction with online, you are storing some kind of user data. I was taking a bus in uh, Seattle a few weeks ago and I realized in order to pay for the ticket, uh, just for this one specific bus transportation agency, I had to download an app, create a user account, store some information, store my payment methods. And there you go. That's one of hundreds of accounts that I have that probably has my information and it hopefully is properly stored somewhere. Who knows? Uh, I think for SaaS tools, the world I come from, data, data privacy becomes even more sticky to navigate because you have many user research and user monitoring vendors and services that are touting their abilities to give your organizations the ability to see what your user are, users are actually doing in your product and doing in your app. Every single click, 
every single mouse over, every single swipe, those can be tracked. So how much of this information do you store? What do you anonymize? And at my company, we're, we've done a lot of this type of heavy lifting to make sure we're compliant with the actual regulations. And it does involve a lot of manual work in terms of scrubbing your database and ensuring that your data storage uh, and data processing like activities are actually compliant with the current legislation. Having said that, I think that not all companies are probably uh, adding the same level of data security and privacy to the data they're storing. So you never know when there might be a breach. You never know when there might be a hack. And so I think the companies that provide these type of services for these, again, nascent companies who are coming into the digital fold, they will grow and they will provide these services. And this will just be an ongoing trend as uh, more folks store their data online and the, regula and the legisla legislators and regulators uh, enact more legislation to make sure that companies are compliant with how they are storing people's data. I quickly want to bring this, bring this to a more personal use case, which is if you've ever gone to haveibeenpwned.com, you plug in your email address, I believe, and it basically tells you all the websites, all the services where your email, your personal information has been compromised. And it's pretty alarming how many companies have been compromised in terms of uh, data breach and leaking your user data. And there's services that you can use to actually remove your personal information online. Um, just as an experiment, type in your name and your phone number or email address in double quotes, and you'll be surprised by how many of these people finder websites have your information in their database. And you have to manually go through each one and tell them you want to be removed from their database in order for them to actually delete your entry online, which is super annoying. But that's what happens when there's data breaches and your information gets basically spread all over the internet and there's nothing you can really do about it except go one by one and remove your information or pay for a service that does it for you, which is uh, convenient. But again, it, it's kind of like this could have been avoided if these companies were just more secure with their data. So that's number two, data security, privacy, regulation. It's a big topic. and I think it's going to grow even more and more in 2023. Number three, data operations and observ observability tools start to manage the data lifecycle. And I'm seeing this actually happen in my company and some others. And the key point here is that developer operations, DevOps, not only monitors the health of your organization's website, your apps, but also your databases, your data warehouse, and essentially your full-on data systems. And I think that these, as again, as companies undergo digital transformation, your, these companies will have to maintain their data close to 100% uptime so that their customers and users are can get their data whenever they want. And I think it's one of those things where once your customers and users get a taste of what it's like to access their data, no matter where they are, what time of day it is, you can never go back to saying that your data is not available and not accessible to your users and to your customers. And so tools that exist to observe and monitor how your data is being transformed, how it's being accessed, and ensuring that there's no hiccups along the way in your data pipeline, those companies will, again, continually to continue to prosper and provide a really important service to these companies that are undergo, undergoing a digital transformation. Um, 
I'll be honest, I'm a little bit removed from my own organization's data systems and tooling, but I know that our data stack is composed of many microservices and dependencies. And I think these observability tools help you understand this whole system and knowing when a dependency might fail. And this sparks the other bigger debate of having a monolith versus microservices, but luckily uh, that question is way beyond my pay grade, so not gonna talk about that. But assuming that many companies are using a microservice architecture, the, the notion of having, or the need for having observability tools and a data ops monitoring system just becomes more crucial over time. And there's a few episodes I've done um, interviews with folks that are talking about all these new tools and frameworks that are cropping up in this data ops, data monitoring, data observability space. And you can check out the show notes for those or just search on the KeyCots blog or the podcast, uh, Dear Analyst. Uh, Number four, this one was a little bit of a challenge to uh, think about and research, but I do think it's important and I think it'll become more of a trend. And I think we're seeing this more from a consumer perspective, and that is bringing ESG, environmental, I think it's essence for societal, governmental uh, data to the forefront. ESG is obviously uh, the topic du jour over the last year or so. And you see this happening again on the consumer side, especially with uh, consumer transportation. If you do a quick Google search uh, on Google Flights for any flight, all the flights come with the price, the, the duration, but they also come with the CO2 emission. And Google does a good job of showing you how much this flight quote unquote costs from a CO2 perspective. As the SEC and other regulatory bodies require companies to provide good ESG data, uh, vendors that can help you audit and make sure that your ESG data is compliant with these regulations will also be very popular because uh, consumers and customers are asking for it. And as a result, the regulators are clamping down and then the companies and organizations that uh, have to provide this type, of, this type of data in order to make sure they're compliant with these ESG regulations and standards. So I think this will come becoming ESG data will be becoming uh, more prevalent for more companies, not just in transportation, but I think even ancillary industries, uh, shipping, um, consumer electronics maybe, I think just it'll become more of a more important topic for all these companies um, just because consumers and customers are asking for it. And one thought exercise I've um, done is thinking about what it takes to launch like your Instagram app, for instance, and seeing the photos in your timeline. And, and do you really, and just thinking about what it takes to serve up that request of photos on your timeline. We know that cloud computing, data storage, it's all getting cheaper every year. You can just reference Moore's law for that. And we know that it's cheap from a monetary perspective to store data, to process data. But what about the environmental impact? And that's where I'm still kind of learning about the space and trying to understand what it is, what is what actually is the environmental impact of it of a data center, and what impact do I have as an individual consumer who like has a bunch of apps on his phone and launches these services whenever I want when I'm bored? What kind of tax that actually has on the data center 
from an from an electricity and CO two emission perspective, but also from the uh, data center perspective as well. And according to this paper I found, um, the sources in the show notes, 1.8% of electricity and 0.5% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by data centers in the United States. So if you think about that random time, you're on the subway, you're commuting, and you're bored, you just load up Instagram, you load up Facebook, your email, that is a request to some data center. And that data center requires electricity and water, believe it or not, to run. And to serve up that photo on Instagram, how much does it actually cost from an energy perspective? That, I don't know. There's a graphic I put in the show notes that shows um, how data centers use more electricity than certain countries. But again, these are just, um, they could be just people that are trying to lobby for um, more green energy, who knows, but this is an area I'm trying to learn more about. Um, even from my own personal perspective, I've written quite a few Google Apps script in the past couple of years to automate kind of like personal things like how do I create events, Google Calendar events from email? How do I sync Google Sheets into Coda? These are scripts you can find on my, my blog and in the podcast. And sometimes I have these scripts running like every hour, every day. You could have these scripts running every minute because Google Apps Scripts is 100% free. It doesn't cost anything to run some one of these scripts every minute. And I think to myself, how necessary is it to run this script for a simple personal productivity time-saving hack? It feels like I'm saving time, but how much am I really saving in terms of well, I'm not saving anything, I guess. I'm, I'm actually costing a data center energy somewhere in Google's network of data centers and also costing Google uh, energy consumption, CO2 emissions, somewhere down the line. As little as it may be, but take my use case and multiply by, multiply by millions of people running app scripts at every single minute, and it will, relatively speaking, add up. So I'm still learning about this space and you know, as running these scripts and cron jobs and DAGs becomes free, essentially, I think it's important to think about what is the environmental impact that we have from just one person running a simple script on a data center, a data center that you can't really see, you can't really feel, and you don't know the, the amount of electricity or water that goes into keeping that data center alive and to keep your scripts running without uh, any downtime. So just a thought exercise to think about next time you open up your Instagram app. Uh, number five, the final one is organizations helping employees acquire data literacy, data literacy and data storytelling skills. And to be fair, this trend is a little bit self-serving, but I do think it has some merits. Um, the reason why I'm, I'm saying it's self-serving is because I do teach online Excel classes and Google Sheets classes via Skillshare. So I'm obviously incentivized to have this trend continue. But as a result of tools like um, Mode, Looker, Google Data Studio to show um, your organization's data and your customers' data, it's not just the analysts that are expected to know how to use and understand these tools. Um, It's everyone in the organization. They are these tools are being um, 
the ability to share dashboards, the ability to share charts and visualizations is becoming easier and easier within these tools. And these tools obviously want to spread within organizations. So you have everyone from HR to sales to the C-suite using these tools and clicking on links. And it's not just the analysts and the engineers that have to understand how to use these tools and understand the data they're looking at. Unfortunately, data skills, data literacy skills are not always taught in middle schools and high schools in the United States. They certainly weren't taught when I was growing up. Yet the top skills we need when entering the workforce are related to using spreadsheets and understanding how to analyze data. I talk about the subject a bit in episode 22 when I reference um, an, a Freakonomics episode. I think it's 399 or something like that. But they basically do a survey of uh, professionals asking them what they learned in high school, how much of those subjects they still continue using in their professional lives. And essentially, we take a bunch of calculus, geometry in high school, but we use very little of it in our working environment. But we do use spreadsheets. We do have to create visualizations. And those are the skills that we use 99% of the time in the workforce, but we don't necessarily learn those skills in middle school and high school. Um, there's another episode. Uh, this is episode number 93 with Sean Tybor and Kelly Shusta-Paredes. They were teachers who incorporated Python into the classroom and are very big proponents of teaching data literacy and data anal analysis to middle school and high school students. So I think that episode is worth a listen if you're curious about this subject. And just to show some more data points about this trend, in 2019, the New York Times provided a data boot camp for its reporters to better to help them better learn about data and how help them tell stories with data. And this was completely driven by an internal initiative to just improve data literacy at the New York Times. And these Google Sheets files and training materials are still online from this bootcamp. They're publicly available. I put the link in the show notes. And Lindsay Cook, she is an editor for digital storytelling and training at the New York Times. She was the one that spearheaded this initiative in 2019. I talk about it in a podcast episode. You can search for it on the Dear Analyst uh, podcast. Uh, but she also wrote a nice blog post explaining why they want to bring these skills to their reporters. And I believe it was all internally done. They didn't hire like an outside firm to teach their reporters how to do analysis and teach data skills. They just kind of put together a few Google Docs and Google Sheets files and started doing this one day or two day training internally. And it worked out really well. And that blog post kind of highlights um, some of the best practices from that experience from uh, Lindsay Cook. So definitely take a read through that blog post if you want to learn more about that. And uh, finally, the U.S. Department of Education also believes that basic data literacy skills should be brought earlier into the U.S. educational system. And they published this deck in 2021. And it just highlights a bunch of different like teachers and organizations and initiatives that are trying to bring more data literacy to schools. And more importantly, it highlights the reason why this is important. And there's one slide I post in the show notes where the title says, an imperative. The development of statistical thinking is an imperative today. Every individual must be able to synthesize data to support decision-making, make sense of our world, and prepare for the future. 
I thought that was a really nice slide to end on to kind of cap off this trend for employees acquiring data literacy skills. And I think the interesting thing here is if your organization is interested in, interested in upskilling employees with data literacy and data storytelling skills, you don't necessarily need to hire an outside organization. While it would be helpful, there's obviously a bunch of free resources on YouTube, but one place that you might not have thought about looking are the data vendors and data providers themselves. For instance, Google Analytics has a training program called Google Analytics Academy, and it does teach mostly basics around how to use Google Analytics, like the platform, but it also teaches some basic under, uh, basic skills about how to analyze analytics, how the data is collected, and what are some best practices for using that data, perhaps analyzing in a spreadsheet, uh, putting into a database. And so I would look to some of these vendors like Mode, Looker, Google, and you'd be surprised by how much data skills they teach from their free resources, like on how to use Excel, SQL, Google Sheets, they obviously want you to use their platforms and pay for their platforms. So I think in order to do that, they realize, these platforms realize they have to provide this free training. And a lot of this training just has to do with basic data one-on-one skills. So I think if anything, if you're already using, if, you're in, if your organization is already paying for one of these data tools, chances are they have some free training resources that can give you, your employees, the basic understanding of data and how it's, use and important and how it's important within an organization uh, so that wraps up my five trends for 2023 and in terms of other things i'm working on for next year is i'm actually really excited to start publishing and charging for some uh, excel and google sheets templates it's something i've been thinking about for a while this year and next year i think i in addition to my online classes i, I want to start publishing some templates that um, I've seen being asked about and requested a lot online, and I think I can just do a good job of creating them since that's what I've done in the past and it's what I currently do and figured I could try to make, make some money from it. So we'll see how the experiment goes and I will let you know when those come out. So yeah, my big um, effort for next year is working on these templates, hopefully keeping the bot podcast up, of course, and talking to folks in the data analytics space. So thank you so much for listening over the last 112 episodes, I believe. And I want to end on um, talking about one podcast, something I like to do traditionally in all my podcast episodes, one podcast that caught my attention in the last few months, which is the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris, episode number 299. It's called Steps in the Right Direction. Sam is talking with uh, Russ Roberts, which is also one of my favorite podcasters. Um, he is the host of, I'm not going to forget, something about economics. I'm going to just Google this really quick. I can't believe I can't remember what Russ Roberts' uh, podcast is about, but it's about economics. And let me see here, podcast, Econ Talk. I know it has Econ in the name of it, Econ Talk Podcast. So Sam and Russ Roberts are talking about a variety of things. They're talking about moral progress, the power of books, uh, Darwin's embarrassing thoughts, in incommensurate goods, free writing, counterfactuals, all these, you know, just simple things you talk about 
with your buddies. Um, just kidding. These are pretty deep topics. But around minute 28, they start talking about something important and interesting. And Russ tells a story about how he himself heard this story from uh, Ron Howard, a professor. And this professor used to give out tests. And these are multiple choice questions, I believe, um, on these tests. And in addition to obviously answering the question, the professor required students to put a percentage on how much they thought their answer was correct. So let's say you felt very confident about a question and about the answer to your question on this test, you would write, write 100%. And if you got that question right, then you got a you know, whole bunch of points. But if you got the question wrong and you marked it with 100% uncertainty, you got negative infinity points. And that negative infinity points was, it cannot be counterbalanced by having um, correct questions um, later on that were 100%. So basically, you were disincentivized to mark your uh, an answer as being 100% correct. And this basically incentivized or caused students to really think about whether they were certain of the answer to a question. And I think the bigger takeaway here is that nothing is 100%. There will always be uncertainty with all the decisions you make. And decision making decision making is an art and in science. And I think you are never uh, not uncertain in answering a question. And I think the simple story that Russ talks about um, could be applied to your normal everyday life and, and also to your language for that matter. And just saying that like, you know, when you think you're 100% certain about something, step back and evaluate, is there a black swan event that could happen that could lead to this not being 100%? And I think for most things in life, nothing is 100% certain. And so with that, uh, I want to end this 2022 Dear Analyst podcast episode by saying that nothing is certain and to uh, continually question yourself, question yourselves, question um, your your work, question your beliefs, and constantly analyze, think internally about what you believe and what you've been told to believe. That is the best advice I've gotten from a former manager who told me what a good analyst does, which is always asking questions and always challenging assumptions. And I hope you'll do that for the rest of the few days in 2022 and looking into 2023. So thank you for listening and I will talk to you next year. Mm-hmm.